This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, it's 7.06, Monday the 27th of February. And of course, this is the morning run with Philip C, Chong Jensen and I'm Wong Xiaoning. And the alphabet of today is B because it's going to be standing for, it stands of course for Budget 2023. And as expected, in about 30 minutes, we'll be speaking to Julia Goh, Senior Economist at UOB Malaysia for her thoughts on this. In the meantime, let's recap how global markets closed last week. All US markets were in the red. The Dow and S&P 500 was down by 1%. NASDAQ down by 1.7%. Asian markets were a bit more mixed. The Nikkei was up by 1.3%. Hang Seng down by 1.7%. Shanghai Composite down by 0.6%. The Straits Times Index up by 0.5%. And the FBM KLCI, it was down by 0.1%. So for more on where international markets are heading, we have on the line with us Kingsley Jones, Chief Investment Officer at Javins Global. Good morning, Kingsley. Always good to speak to you now. I think we have to start with this Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, which explains, you know, why all US markets close in the red. Now, this, of course, because the Fed's favourite inflation gauge has caused a swift repricing of the terminal rate forecast. So now markets are expecting it to peak at 5.4% this year compared to expectations of it peaking at 5% just earlier this month. Do you agree with this analysis though, Kingsley? Yes, I I certainly think that those rates will go higher. And uh, so I'm not surprised that uh, those forecasts have changed. But I think the key thing to remember here is that uh, when you talk about monetary policy and monetary theory, uh, and how much money is actually in the economy. You know, two things really matter. One is obviously the quantity of money, but the, the second thing, which I think has long been forgotten, is the velocity of money, just how rapidly that money is moving from uh, one transaction to the next. And I, I think that that's part of the reason why the U.S. economy is so robust now, because uh, we are seeing conditions uh, with very low unemployment uh, and a lot of catch-up expenditure post-COVID. Uh, but also a lot of new homemaking activity amongst younger generations. And I think that's what's really making this uh, core services and other components of PCE uh, quite sticky. So we wouldn't be surprised to see uh, it's possible those forecasts may even go higher. You know, some folks are calling for uh, US interest rates to possibly go as high as 6%. Um, you, You may think that that's extreme, but the thing to remember about the United States is that a lot of mortgages there are fixed. So anybody who's already got a fixed mortgage in the United States uh, hasn't actually seen any interest rate rises. Uh, that's different if you're looking at large tick, uh, large um, consumer items like automobiles, uh, which are often financed, and those rates have gone up. So it will take quite a bit of effort from the Fed to really slow this economy down. So yes, indeed, we do think that those uh, upgrades to the forecasts for further rate rises make sense, and we think that they're probably not enough, and it may yet go further. But what does this then mean for risk on assets? Because we already see uh, U.S. Treasuries rise, right? Does this mean that there'll be more money shifting out of equities if the terminal rate goes as high as 6%? Because the risk reward for equities doesn't look that attractive anymore then. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, that That's the risk, right? So, um, you know, that huge rally that we had in January, uh, particularly in the tech stocks, um, you know, some beaten down names for moving very... Uh, by a great margin, uh, but also you know stocks like Tesla, which uh, we all agree is a, you know a fantastic story, but uh, 
you know, a, a roughly a 60, 70% move uh, in such a short space of time uh, is probably not going to last if interest rates do hit 6%. Uh, because, uh, you know, the thing here, of course, is, as uh, listeners will know, interest rates uh, really determine the discount factor for uh, stocks. And if you have growth stocks with very long duration uh, earnings, that is to say, you know, their growth profile goes out into the future, but you have high interest rates, uh, you know, that stock today is worth less as a result of the discounting effect. And, you know, we think that that's probably going to start to bite, uh, you know, once we get through the end of March into the second quarter. So what does it say then when there's a Goldman Sachs report showing that tech names constitute the most owned stocks by hedge funds, you know, with Microsoft, Amazon, Melton, Alphabet, the top four, you know? Why do you think these companies still dominate in their stock selection process then? I guess there's a few things there. Firstly, um, you know, those stocks, those particular stocks, but tech in general, obviously, was the standout sector in the bull market before we went into this current bear market period. Um, and it's not unusual to find investors, you know, sticking to positions that have made them a lot of money. Uh, you know, for reference, you know, there's been a couple of tech booms uh, over the last 50 years. There was one in the late 60s, early 70s. IBM became the biggest stock in the world, and it actually stayed there for quite a few years. I think it was 10 or 15 years before it was pipped by Exxon. So it's not unusual for companies with very strong franchises, and IBM had an extremely strong franchise in the 70s uh, for computing and business with mainframes. Um, you know, it's not unusual for them to continue to do well for some time. We think the biggest factor here, though, with those particular names is the AI revolution. Um, and, it, you know, it costs a lot to train an AI model. And as you saw with OpenAI, they took a bigger cash injection from Microsoft uh, because they really needed the money to, to be able to um, train the models. And those particular names, Microsoft, Amazon, Meta and Alphabet, they all have very good credentials in AI. I think the one that's been left out there is IBM. Uh, and, uh, you know, they can potentially do quite well in this coming period because they have cash resources and the talent uh, to actually, frankly, buy up any innovative startup uh, and roll that into their services. So we do think the AI boom is here to stay. Uh, but we also would point out that there's other areas of the market investors are probably not warm to yet, uh, but which we think will do well. And that's really the energy transition. That's a huge CapEx wave that's coming and it's going to buy real assets you know things like real solar panels wind turbines hydrogen transport electrolyzers all of that stuff and and perhaps that's the emerging bull market in the wings it's just that we have to wait a little while to get through this period of uh, interest rate normalization and kingsley moving on to evs china is set to become the dominant player in the ev space where does this leave japanese uh, car makers like toyota and honda do they have hope of competing with the likes of Teslas and BYDs? Yeah, it's possible the Japanese automakers have left their run a little bit late here. Uh, you know, obviously Toyota, they've made large investments in hybrid vehicles early on, uh, and they have their own reasons for that. They believe that, uh, you know, fossil fuels will be around for a while, particularly in emerging markets, and that uh, the hybrid electric vehicle has a role to play there also on materials use. Uh, you don't need as much battery material for those. Um, but having said that, you know, obviously electric vehicles are really forging ahead in China. Uh, and there's a risk that uh, some of these automakers get left behind. Um, in South Korea, I, th I think the story is probably better there in as much as uh, Hyundai and other players are, are really investing a lot and, and proving up their electric vehicle credentials. 
And I might mention that the, the South Koreans have been quite active in engaging with Australian companies, uh, such as Australian Strategic Materials, about sourcing the right elements in the supply chain to be able to make, you know, the magnets that they need for the electric motors in the in the vehicles. So we'll just have to wait and see on this. I think it's probably too early to say, oh, gee, they're out of the race. Uh, but they will have to do some running to catch up, particularly the Japanese automakers, we feel. Kingsley, I have some questions on Australia, one of which is what um, are the chances that Australia will actually fall into a recession? Because a Bloomberg show, survey shows that uh, most survey expect a one in three chance as opposed to a one in four chance, which was late last year. This is very much driven by Reserve Bank of Australia Chief Philip Lowe's expectation of further interest rate rises. Which camp do you fall into? They're certainly rising as those surveys demonstrate. Um, I, I think the, there's a couple of mitigating factors that suggest we were unlikely to have recession. One is that the commodity sector continues to do well, and of course that uh, helps our balance of payments. Um, the, the other factor is, uh, you know, this generationally low unemployment that we're experiencing right now, uh, which certainly supports, you know, the case for some stress, some pain, uh, but a likely continuation of okay economic conditions, not recession. On the flip side of that, though, Australia historically has is, is always been uh, a little bit susceptible to a downturn if US interest rates get very high. Um, the big reason for that in the past was our balance of payments, where we often ran a trade deficit. Now we're running the surplus, so it's probably less likely, but it will still have an effect through the transmission mechanism in foreign exchange. So specifically, as US interest rates go up, and we think they're going to go high, clearly, um, you know, that will strengthen the US dollar, that tightens conditions around the world, and it often poses a risk for Australia that our own dollar falls, and then the RBA has to raise interest rates further than they might otherwise want to, um, and that could precipitate a recession in Australia. I think that's why those risks are rising, mm. but they're still less than 50% at this time. All right. Thank you very much for your time. That was Kingsley Jones, Chief Investment Officer at Jevons Global. Uh, ending the conversation on the chances of Australia falling into a recession, less than 50%, um, maybe it will remain still the very lucky country. Okay. Uh, but let's turn our attention to a man who I would say has been extremely lucky uh, for what? six, seven decades, but perhaps not so lucky this quarter. And of course, that is Warren Buffett because Berkshire Hathaway released its fourth quarter numbers over the weekend, which saw operating profits fall as inflationary pressures weighed on the conglomerate's business, resulting in profits actually declining or at least below street expectations coming in. That's right. Operating earnings, as you said, total $6.7 billion, down 8% from the year earlier. Earnings from Berkshire's railroad utilities and energy business came in at about $2.2 billion, down from $3 billion. Insurance underwriting down from $372 million a year ago. Overall earnings, though, dropped as a decline of 54% for the same quarter. So for the full year, overall earnings tumbled by 125% to a loss of 22 Three billion dollars in 2022. So CEO Warren Buffett offers gives little weight to changes in the firm's quarterly or annual results. So he doesn't look at it really on a quarterly basis. But they've been buying back shares. They've used about 2.86 billion dollars to buy back shares, uh, which is lower than a year ago where they spent close to six billion dollars. Well, I found it very interesting because you know, as we all know, Berkshire has this annual letter, and oh, e those an annual the annual letter is like a gem. It is a gem, and, and you need to like read every line, like almost like Fed minutes. 
Exactly. I think he, but he did push back a lot on his share buyback critics, right? Saying that if they were criticizing buybacks, they are either economically illiterate or a silver tongued demagogue. Ooh, okay. I've got another good one, another zinger. And it reads Despite our citizens' pension for almost or almost enthusiasm for self criticism and self doubt, I have yet to see a time when it made sense to make a long term bet against America. I.e., I'm right, you guys are wrong, and I can wait it out. So read between the lines. What's wrong? What's up with just one quarter? I look at the years and decades of record, I think. Uh, pretty much that's his point. Uh, but on a year to date basis, which is nothing, of course, because we're just only in February or coming to an end of February, uh, the stock is down 1.5%. Uh, but that's up next, of course. We're heading in, we're going to be covering the top stories in newspapers and portals. Stay tuned for that, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the BFM app.